6 a.m. on the West Coast, 9 a.m. on the East Coast of America, 2 p.m. in London, 7.30 in Mumbai, India. It is 11 p.m. in Kyoto, Japan, and here in Malaysia, it's 1972. I'm Jay Sheldon. I'm not wearing pants again. Happy Monday. Oh, yeah, it's Monday. But it's almost over for us here in Malaysia. In fact, in some parts of the world, it, it is over already. So, good on you. But yeah, it was, it was a Monday. Um, it is also, well, the ninth, really. But it's still the ninth in some parts of the world. At least you folks in the U.S. It is... Law Enforcement Appreciation Day, and we certainly want to take a moment to appreciate all of our men and women who wear the blue, and uh, that includes corrections officers, Border Patrol, ICE agents, all the folks involved in our uh, law enforcement. And this is going around today, so you've probably seen it, maybe not if you haven't, you need to watch this. And this, I can think of no better example of why we need to appreciate the people who wear the uniform of law enforcement. I, uh, I posted this on my Facebook, but honestly, I've opened up the Twitter from the LAPD because I think this is a little bigger. You can see it a little better. Uh, Foothills Division officers from the Los Angeles Police Department displayed unbelievable heroism and quick action, which saved the life of a pilot. The pilot had made an emergency landing and wound up with his plane crashed directly on railroad tracks, and there was an oncoming train at San Fernando Road and Osborne Street. Take a look. you got to watch carefully. This is a body cam, so it's a little hard to make out. But you will see the officers pulling the pilot, who is badly injured, out of this airplane, which has crash-landed on the railroad tracks as a freight train is barreling down on them, and they rush in, and this is what happens. You see here, he's right on the tracks, they're pulling him out of the plane. He can't give them much assistance because he himself is pretty well battered up here. But watch right here coming up. Watch. Watch. Boom. That train hit that plane seconds. Seconds. What was it? Maybe two seconds after they had pulled that pilot out of that plane. Wow unbelievable and again like I said no better way to celebrate law enforcement appreciation day I was involved in law enforcement for about five years in Florida in Monroe County Sheriff's Office and uh, I'm not this isn't oh look at me this is just that I've been there I haven't been there but I've been there and uh this is an absolutely remarkable story, and uh, these folks are, wow, tip of the hat. 
incredible. All right, uh, here's a little girl who is always tipping her hat. It's our Miko update. Miko update. <laughs> Miko update. Me, 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 me. We need a new theme, I think. She's well. Uh, not much to update. She's doing really good. She's been eating me out of house and home still. Uh, had a couple of nice walks today. That was fun. And uh, other than that, she's play, still playing with her squeaky toys. So there's not a whole lot to update. Uh, you know, I did just think today. Do I have dragon meat in my teeth? I ate a piece of dragon meat before I came on a little bite. I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I should have checked. Anyway, she's downstairs begging for dragon meat, which she cannot have. So we have some other cookies for her anyway. So it's just as well. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, she is, uh, she's doing well. And I just thought today with Chinese New Year coming up, I don't know that she will fit in her little Chinese New Year outfit because she was a lot smaller last year. I need to check that. I might need to be buying a new, bigger outfit for this Chinese New Year. I hope not, because they're bloody expensive. This dog, honestly. This dog is going to eat me out of house and home, and he is going to delete my bank account. I'm telling you. Mm. This dog, right here. If you're looking on our video live or watching the replay, there's our Miko mug, which is available from I'm Not Wearing Pants on Twitch.tv. Just search around in there on the About page. You'll find Miko merch. There's all kinds of cool stuff. Hoodies, baseball caps, all kinds of stuff. All featuring Miko, of course. All right. Well, uh, our top story tonight is actually also about animals. Um, move over Oculus Rift. Because apparently they have discovered that using VR goggles for cows has a benefit. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Now, this might be Russian-controlled media, but I found other sources that apparently this is 100% true. I'll show you in a second. But this I saw on my Facebook feed from RT. They're watching a green pasture, and it gives them an emotional boost they are less stressed. You'll see here there's an actual picture of this cow wearing a pair of VR goggles. Turkish farmer Izet Kocak was prompted to adorn his cattle with high-tech headsets after reading a Russian study that suggested they make cows happier. And happy cows equals more milk. Happy farmer. After sending just Two of his cows into agriculture's meta uh, metaverse, uh, Kochak was amazed to see that their milk production actually did go up from 22 to 27 liters a day. He got an extra three liters of milk out of the cows just sticking these stupid things on their mugs. He's so impressed he's going to buy 10 more headsets. And if you think I'm kidding you, or this is some, uh, you know, Russian propaganda, although mm, uh, this is from a website called verdict.co.uk and it's the same story. Move over Oculus Rift. The cows are in town. And here indeed is another picture of a cow with a, a VR headset on. 
You'll find the link, by the way, to all the, all the stuff we talk about in our show notes tonight. That's the description down below the video. Uh, so if you want to check them out, or if you're listening on the podcast, in the description, you'll find all these links. Uh, a Russian farmer put VR headsets on cows to see if they yield better milk. And the experiment put cows in virtual summer fields to improve their emotional health. Uh, well, uh, looking at the physical needs of the animals, researcher began to look at how technology could help dairy production. And farmers at one of Moscow's largest farms partnered with IT specialists to see how technology could play a role in improving the animals' well-beings. The Ministry of Agriculture and Food said during the first test, experts recorded a decrease in anxiety and an increase in the overall mood of the herd. I'm not sure how you would judge a cow's mood, maybe by the exciting excitement sound of their moo. Uh, anyway, the impact of the VR glasses on the milk production of cows is going to be shown by further comprehensive study. You can check out this whole article. They talk about the data and some of the stuff that's going on. And uh, the cows actually were fitted with VR goggles. And apparently, in a lot of cases, they actually increased their milk production. So somebody, some smart entrepreneur out there, you know, because right now they're using the human ones and just sticking them on. Some smart businessman or woman needs to make a pair designed specifically for cows. You clean up. Yeah, you make a fortune. No, really, cows, VR goggles, it's a thing. Who'd have thought? <laughs> Man. Speaking of it's a thing, who'd have thought... We're moving over to the crazy Japanese, and I say that with my heart full of love for the crazy Japanese. As you know, uh, I'm one of the biggest Japanophiles on the planet. But, oh yeah, by the way, I'm wearing my Kadahan shirt tonight. Check it out. If you're from Malaysia, you'll know what that is. Anyway, the Japanese are insane, and they have some rather unusual culinary tastes, and the good folks, we love these folks over at World of Buzz. They've done it again. They, you'll find the link in our show notes. Please do encourage you to click over there and, uh, and read this. Ice cream ramen. Ew. Yeah, a big ew. I love almost everything Japanese, but I think I'm drawing a big red line in the sand here to mix metaphors. Uh, ice cream ramen is a thing in Japan, and people actually like it. And this is a picture of ramen noodles. That looks like a really spicy chili base with some sentry eggs, maybe, or maybe just regular hard-boiled eggs. And a soft-serve ice cream cone plunked right dab in the middle of it. Don't ask me. I don't know. Go to the World of Buzz article and check it out. I love all things Japanese. I love all food Japanese. I would never in a billion years eat this. It's not an accident. Restaurants in Osaka recently introduced the sweet and spicy miso ramen 
where ice cream is mixed in and eaten together with a savory ramen. According to the restaurant's official Twitter site, which is at Torizo Basangjin, the limited dish is very popular, and it has an unlikely combination of ramen with chocolate and vanilla soft-serve ice cream on top. There is their Twitter post. I don't read Japanese. I should have learned a long time ago. It's to celebrate the new year, and it will be available until the end of March. Uh, weird as it might look, the dish actually got good reviews from those who tried it, said the tastes unexpectedly good, and it has a pleasant fragrance. Yeah, um, no thank you. Ah, yes, ice cream ramen. Kind of makes you hungry, huh? Nice late night snack. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> oh, we Asians are inventive, aren't we? I'm including myself in that group because I've been here 20 years now. So I'm, I'm a virtual Asian, I suppose. Speaking of Asian and being inventive, check this out. Look, we do weird stuff on this show. We're not necessarily controversial. Occasionally, we'll hit one or two things that I feel quite strongly about, and we'll we'll say something controversial. But for the most part, what we try to do is just give you an hour, less than an hour, around an hour of the weird stuff, the fun stuff, the hmm stuff, uh, just to give you a break from it. You want controversial, you want political crap, you want religious junk, all that mess Millions of hours of programming out there. Knock yourself out. This is a spot to come in, grab a beer, a cup of coffee, or a tea, and sit back and enjoy the weird things in life. So that's what we do on this show. If you're interested, thank you. Hit that subscribe button, follow on Facebook, and subscribe on Rumble, too, I think it is. Uh, anyway, check this out. This is amazing. It's from a website called Dezine dot com d-e-z-e-e-n uh, the links again in our description down below in either the podcast or the video version of our show but uh ibuku completes unprecedented bamboo building in the balinese jungle look at this this roof is entirely made of bamboo and not only is it incredible as far as its structure, but the look of this is amazing. You've got to check it out if you're listening to the podcast. Please do check on the link and, and go check out the article in Dezine. Ibuku completes unprecedented bamboo buildings in the Balinese jungle. Uh, architecture studio Ibuku has completed the ARC gymnasium for a private school in Bali, it features a, comple a complex double-curved roof, which is made entirely from bamboo. The Ark is the latest building to be completed on the site of the Green School. It's a private educational institution that promotes sustainability through learning in a natural environment. What a cool idea. Imagine that as your classroom. And imagine this as your gym. That is absolutely remarkable. Wow. And I will assume with the kind of rains they get in Bali, it's been designed by the architects to also withstand that, the elements uh, there. But I, I saw that, I thought, whoa, this is 
too nice not to share. That's, that's incredible. All right. From the wild and weird to the mysteries that make us sleep with the nightlight on. This article from Ranker.com. You'll again find this link in our show notes. Uh, notes. Who, who doesn't love a good mystery? Uh, unlike the latest whodunits, uh, detective series or local mysteries that have been solved, real-life puzzles that haven't been cracked yet. Mm, this is a Ranker.com puts out these weird lists of things, and so I, I saw this one I wanted to share. There is a lost nuclear bomb in the United States. We don't know where it is. I don't know. It's just a nuclear bomb. That's okay. No big deal. Apparently, I have heard this story before. I didn't know much about the details. But uh, an explosive device uh, capable of mass destruction, otherwise known as a nuclear bomb, has been lost off the coast of Tybee Island, and it has never been recovered. In 1958, one of the U.S. bombs slipped through its fingers. Colonel Howard Richardson was piloting a plane loaded with a nuclear warhead when he had an accident with another plane in the air. Worried about the weapon in his cargo, he released the bomb into the ocean off the coast of Tybee Island in Georgia. And no one has ever found it. Now, if you're telling me the U.S. Navy, with all of their sonar, and since we knew pretty exactly where he released the thing, no one's been able to find this nuclear bomb? This is an article that I put in our show notes before, but this will give you, uh, if you want to read more about it, it's fascinating if you missed it. There is a, a bridge in Scotland which is called the Dog Suicide Bridge. This is a horrible story, but it's absolutely true. Overton Bridge leads visitors to the Overton House, a grand Scottish country home constructed in the mid-19th century. But although it's picturesque bridge, which you can see here in the picture, um, is beautiful, its beauty is diminished by its troubling history. For some reason, scientists have yet to exactly figure out, dogs seem compelled to jump off the bridge. And this bridge, although this picture is deceptive, the, the, the fall from this bridge is many, many yards or meters down, enough that you would reach terminal velocity. And um, some, not all, have jumped off the bridge for no explainable reason to their death. Dogs, not people, dogs. Uh, no one knows exactly. It's possible that dogs are picking up on an irresistible scent on the bridge, uh, maybe a wild animal, and jump off in pursuit. But to this day, scientists have studied it. They've come up with a number of theories, but they still don't know exactly. And a large number of dogs get excited, run up, and leap off this bridge, in many cases to their death. It's a scary, sad story. A British woman who believes she was a reincarnated... Wait a minute, where'd we go? Here, believe she was a reincarnated ancient Egyptian, actually knew where to dig. 
Over the course of her life, Dorothy Eady made the same media outlets, uh, uh, made what some media outlets felt was a compelling claim for reincarnation. She was born in England in 1904. She suffered a physical uh, trauma at age of three, fell down a flight of stairs. Her injuries were so severe that a doctor actually declared her dead, uh, except she wasn't. The youngster was awake and alive again soon enough. However, the injury apparently jolted some something in Edie, and she began to have these visceral recollections of what she believed was her previous life in ancient Egypt. She uh, claimed she was one real uh, Bezenshite, an ancient... All right, enough with the ads an ancient uh, Egyptian princess who committed suicide for having a secret lover. After marrying an Egyptian university student and moving to Egypt, the actual Edie uh, at that point was going by Om Seti, which meant mother of Seti, the name of her son. Uh, she recollected, and uh, her recollections apparently quite convincing, and she actually helped archaeologists make discoveries based on her memories, including the site of ancient gardens. Her work and expertise earned her the respect and admiration of many Egyptologists. They would go to an area, she would say, if you dig over here, you will find this. They dig and they find exactly what she said they would. Weird stuff. This article is cool. It's full of this kind of stories, so please do check them out. It's at uh, ranker.com, and the link, again, is in our uh, our show notes tonight. So check that out if you'd like. All right, got one more story for you. It's a weird one. I promised you the weird stuff, and I'm delivering. I got it. Do you have blue eyes? I do. I have. I don't know. If, I don't know if this camera can pick them up. They don't look blue. They look a little gray today. But my eyes actually change levels of blue according to the the weather and the sunshine. I, I, there are some days my eyes are just icy blue, and other days they go kind of dull and gray. I don't know why. It's just it's just the weird guy. Anyway, if you have blue eyes. Science is saying you are probably related to every other person with blue eyes in the world. Really? We're related. Hey, cuz. Researchers in Denmark found that all blue-eyed people are descended from just one ancestor whose genes mutated between 6,000 and 10,000 years ago, before that time, everyone had brown eyes. Everyone. Every human on the planet had brown eyes. And then one person mutated and had a blue eyes, and that gene carried on. But it is believed that we all descended. We all, we blue-eyed people descended from that one individual. So, if you are a fellow blue-eyed person, nice to meet you, cousin. Uh, somewhere out there. Oh, oh, by the way, uh, this is not related. I don't have a link. I just thought of this. 
I'm a big fan of Pawn Stars. Uh, it's a show, I don't know what actual network it's on, but you can find the replays on YouTube. And I love that show. If you're familiar with Pawn Stars, these guys have been around doing this show for years and years and years. But uh, today, somebody, uh, on one episode I was watching, somebody brought in a, uh, a signed copy. No, it wasn't a signed copy. It was a second edition salesman's copy of Mark Twain's Adventures of Tom Sawyer, the very book we are reading on this show at the moment. We've done lots of classic books. We'll do more. But right now, we're in the middle of Tom Sawyer. And so, of course, my ears picked up when I, when I heard this. So they're going through and they're showing the book. And what it was was a salesman's copy of the original Adventures of Tom Sawyer. And most of these were thrown away, so it was quite valuable. But inside the book, there was a list of all the customers who had ordered the book. And the very first name, I even, I paused the video. I should, I'll get a screenshot. I'll share it in our next show and set up the link too, so you can watch that episode. The very first name at the top of the page was Mr something Elias or something, Sheldon, S-H-E-L-D-O-N, right there, biggest day, unbelievable, my family name in the spot on this salesman's copy from 1876, I suppose that's when the book was written, um, was Mr. Something Sheldon. It, it was I just glanced down when it was going by, and I thought, wait a minute, back that up. So I paused it, and indeed it is there. So since all the Sheldons are related in one way or another, one of my ancestors is in that book as a customer of, uh, of Tom Sawyer. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine my shock. It was. It really was. Anyway, very cool, very cool indeed. And, uh, of course, the fact that we're reading Tom Sawyer is, uh, makes it even more cool. So that is why it is time to move on, of course, to our book. We read classic books on this show. We've been doing that from the very beginning, 162 episodes ago. And uh, we always wrap up the last part of our show with another chapter or part of a chapter. In a classic book, we've done The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, uh, The Little Prince, uh, you name it. We've done a million of them. Velveteen Rabbit, we also did. And um, we've been doing Tom Sawyer. We're on chapter five. By the way, this is a very long book. There's 20 over chapters. So The Adventure of Tom Sawyer, written in 1876. One of my relatives bought an early copy. <laughs> and by the way, we always want to let you know because, you know, today, all the political correctness crap and everything, this was written in 1876. And some of the words in this book, while appropriate at the time, today are considered vulgar. We are reading what is written on the page the way it was originally written. So if that offends you, you've been warned. This is Chapter 5 of The Adventures of Tom. Sawyer. 
About half past ten, the cracked bell of the small church began to ring, and presently the people began to gather for the morning sermon. The Sunday school children distributed themselves about the house and occupied pews with their parents so as to be under supervision. Aunt Polly came, and Tom and Sid and Mary sat with her, Tom being placed next to the aisle, in order that he might be as far away from the open window and the seductive outside summer scenes as possible. The crowd filled up the aisles, the aged and needy, postmaster who'd seen better days, the mayor and his wife, for they had a mayor there among the unnecessaries, the justice of the peace, the widow Douglas, fair, smart, and forty, a generous, good-hearted soul, and well-to-do, her hill mansion, the only palace in the town. I'll get there. Hold on. <clears throat> the most hospitable and much the most lavish in the matter of festivities that St. Petersburg could boast, the bent and venerable mayor, uh, Major and Mrs. Ward, Lawyer Riverson, the new notable from a distance, next the bell of the village, followed by a troop of lawn-clad and ribbon-decked young heartbreakers. Then... All the young clerks in town in a body, for they had stood in the vestibule, sucking their cane heads, a circling wall of oiled and simpering admirers, till the last girl had run their gauntlet, and at last all came the model boy, Willie Mufferson, taking as heedful care of his mother as if she were cut glass. He always brought his mother to church and was the pride of all the matrons. The boys all hated him. He was so good. And besides, he'd been thrown up to them so much. His white handkerchief was hanging out of his pocket behind, as usual on Sundays, accidentally. Tom had no handkerchief, and he looked upon boys who had as snobs. The congregation being fully assembled now, the bell rang once more to warn laggers and stragglers, and then a solemn hush fell upon the church, which was only broken by the tittering and whispering of the choir in the gallery. The choir always tittered and whispered all through service. There was once a church choir that was not ill-bred, but I have forgotten where it was now. It was a great many years ago, and I can scarcely remember anything about it, but I think it was in some foreign country. The minister gave out the hymn and read through it with a relish in a peculiar style, which was much admired in that part of the country. His voice began on a medium key and climbed steady up tilt till it reached a certain point where it bore with strong emphasis upon the topmost word and then plunged down as if from a springboard. Shall I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, whilst others fight to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? He was regarded as a wonderful reader 
At church sociables, he was always called upon to read poetry, and when he was through, the ladies would lift up their hands and let them fall helplessly in their laps, and wall their eyes and shake their heads, so as much to say, words cannot express it. It is too beautiful, too beautiful for this mortal earth. After the hymn had been sung, the Reverend Mr. Sprague turned himself into a bulletin board and read off notices of meetings and societies and things till it seemed the list would stretch out to the crack of doom. A queer custom which is still kept in America, even in cities, away here in this age of abundant newspapers, often the less there is to justify a traditional custom, the harder it is to get rid of it. And now the minister prayed. A good, generous prayer it was, and went into details. It pleaded for the church, the little children of the church, for the other churches in the village, for the village itself, for the country, for the state, for the state officers, for the United States, for the churches of the United States, for Congress, for the president for the officers of the government, for poor sailors tossed by stormy seas, for the oppressed millions groaning under the heel of European monarchies and oriental despotisms, for such as have the light and the good tidings, and yet have not eyes to see nor ears to hear withal, for the heathen in the far islands of the sea, and closed with a supplication, that the words he was about to speak might find grace and favor, and be as seeds sown in fertile ground, yielding in time a harvest of good. Amen. There was a rustling of dresses, and the standing congregation sat down. The boy whose history book relates did not enjoy the prayer. He only endured it, even if he even did that much. He was restive all through it. He kept tally of the details of the prayer unconsciously, for he was not listening, but he knew the ground of old and the clergyman's regular route over it, and when the little trifle of new matter was interlarded, his ears detected it and his whole nature resented it. He considered additions unfair and scoundrelly, in the midst of the prayer, a fly had lit on the back of the pew in front of him and tortured his spirit by calmly rubbing its hands together, embracing its head with its arms, polishing it so vigorously that it seemed to almost part company with the body, and the slender thread of a neck was exposed to view, scraping its wings with its hind legs and smoothing them to his body, as if they'd been coattails, going through his whole toilet as tranquility, as if he knew it was perfectly safe. As indeed it was, for as sorely as Tom's hands itched to grab for it, they did not dare. He believed his soul would be instantly destroyed if he did such a thing while the prayer was going on. But with the closing sentence, his hand began to curve and steal forward, and the instant the amen was out, the fly was a prisoner of war. His aunt detected the act 
and made him let it go. The minister gave out his text and droned along monotonously through an argument that was so prosy that many a head by and by began to nod. And yet it was an argument that dealt in limitless fire and brimstone, thinned the predestined elect down to a company so small as to hardly be worth the saving. Tom counted the pages of the sermon. After church, he always knew how many pages there'd been, but he seldom knew anything else about the discourse. However, this time, he was really interested for a little while. The minister made a grand and moving picture of the assembly together of the world's hosts at the millennium, when the lion and the lamb should lie down together, and a little child should lead them. But the pathos, the lesson, the moral of the great spectacle were lost upon the boy. He only thought of the conspicuousness of the principal character before the onlooking nations, his face lit with the thought. He said to himself that he wished he could be that child, if it was a tame lion. And now he lapsed into suffering again. As the dry argument was resumed, presently he bethought himself a treasure he had and got it out. It was a large black beetle with formidable jaws, a pinch bug, he called it. It was in a percussion cap box. The first thing the beetle did was to take him by the finger. A natural fillip followed, and the beetle went floundering into the aisle and lit on its back, and the hurt finger went into the boy's mouth. The beetle lay there, working its helpless legs, unable to turn over. Tom eyed it, longed for it, but it was safe out of his reach. And they eyed it, too. Other people, uninterested in the sermon, found relief in the beetle. Presently, a vagrant poodle dog came idling along, sat sad at heart, lazy, with the summer softness and the quiet, weary of captivity, sighing for change. He spied the beetle. The drooping tail lifted and wagged. He surveyed the prize, walked around it, smelled at it from a safe distance. He walked around it again, grew bolder, and took a closer smell, then lifted his lip and made a gingerly snatch at it. Just missed, made another and another, began to enjoy the diversion, subsided to his stomach with the beetle between his paws and continued his experiments, grew weary at last and then indifferent, absent-minded, his head nodded, and the little by little his chin descended and touched the enemy who seized it. There was a sharp yelp, a flirt of the poodle's head, and the beetle fell a couple of yards away and lit on its back once more. The neighboring spectators shook with a gentle inward joy. Several faces went behind fans and handkerchiefs. Tom was entirely happy. The dog looked foolish and probably felt so, but there was resentment in his heart, too, and craving for revenge. So he went to the beetle, 
and he began a wary attack on it again, jumping at it from every point of a circle, lighting with its forepaws within an inch of the creature, making even closer snatches, with his teeth jerking his head till his ears flapped again. But he grew tired once more after a while. He tried to amuse himself with a fly, but found no relief. Found an ant around with his nose close to the ground, and quickly wearied of that, yawned, sighed, forgot the beetle entirely, and sat down on it. There was a wild yelp of agony, and the poodle went sailing up the aisle. The yelps continued, and so did the dog. He crossed the house in front of the altar. He flew down the other side, crossed before the doors, clambered up the home stretch. His anguish grew with his progress, till presently he was but a woolly comet, moving in its orbit with the gleam and the speed of light. At last the frantic sufferer sheared from its course, and sprang into the master's lap. He flung it out the window, and the voice of distress quickly thinned away and died in the distance. By this time, the whole church was red-faced and suffocating with suppressed laughter, and the sermon had come to a dead standstill. The discourse was resumed presently, but... It went lame and halting, all possibility of impressiveness being at an end, for even the gravest sentiments were constantly being received with a smothered burst of unholy mirth, under cover of some remote pew-back, as if the poor person had said a rarely fastidious, fastidious thing. It was a genuine relief to the whole congregation when the ordeal was over and the benediction pronounced. So Tom Sawyer went home quite cheerful, thinking to himself there was some satisfaction about divine service when there was a bit of variety in it. He had but one marring thought. He was willing that that dog should play with his pinch bug, but he did not think it was upright in him to carry it off. <laughs> that is chapter five of Tom Sawyer. <laughs> we love this book. All right, we'll move on and do chapter six in our next stream on Wednesday night. I will see you again on Wednesday night, 10 o'clock Malaysian time. Thank you to all of our viewers and folks who check out the video replay of our show. Please do subscribe if you're on YouTube. Really appreciate that. We're trying to get our numbers up over there. Facebook, just hit the follow button. Uh, Twitch.tv, subscribe over there. And on Rumble.com, somewhere over here is a subscribe button. Please click that. Doesn't cost a thing. It's all free. And for our podcast listeners, thank you so much. Our numbers are doing great. Thanks for your follows and downloads over there on our podcast. Until Wednesday, folks, I'm Jay Sheldon. I'm not wearing pants. Good night. Yeah. Yeah.